If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, will be this morning in verses 22 through 42. We've been in a regular series for several months now in the Gospel of John, and that regular exposition brings us to the latter half of John, chapter 10. I'd like to read verses 22 through 42, and the verses we'll be focusing on primarily are verses 27 uh, through 30, but please uh, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 22 of John 10. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Our Father, we depend on You, and we need You now to speak to us through Your Word, that we might better know who You are, that we might better know Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that we might better know Your purposes for our lives. We pray now as we again return to this picture that's given to us of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, we pray that You would cause our hearts to run out to Him in faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, the last uh, two Sundays, and Lord willing, we will finish the chapter today. And I'd just simply like to summarize what we've seen over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, John 10, from the very beginning verses, works with the metaphor, the imagery of a shepherd with his sheep. That's the metaphor Jesus chooses, a very warm and tender image to capture something of the relationship that Jesus possesses with His disciples. He is the Good Shepherd, and we are His sheep. And He is the Good Shepherd in that He lays down His life for the sheep. He knows each one by name, and He calls them by name, and they come out and they follow Him. And we considered two weeks ago the various characteristics of the Good Shepherd. What did we learn about Jesus in His capacity as the Good Shepherd? That was two weeks ago. And then last week on uh, Easter Sunday, we looked at verses 17 and 18 where Jesus says uh, that He lays down His life that He might take it up again, that, that no one takes His life from Him. He lays it down of His own accord. He has authority to lay it down, has authority to take it up again. And this is the charge that He was given, apparently, from His Father, to go, to live, to die, and then to rise again. That was last week. Verses 19 and 21 are essentially transitional. They document uh, divergent reactions to Jesus, and we've seen this before in other passages. 
Then we arrive at verse 22, the beginning of the passage we'll consider uh, this morning. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between verse 21 and verse 22. Probably not that much time at all, probably a matter of weeks. Um, But I think we're to understand uh, verse 22 and following to be thematically linked with what has gone before because we're going to see uh, that Jesus, again being questioned by the Jews, still makes use of this shepherd-sheep imagery. So it's all of a piece with what John has been telling us so far about Jesus as the good shepherd, we as his uh, disciples. And we're going to focus this morning on verses 27 through 30 and what Jesus says there uh, about his sheep and his relationship with them. But I want to pick up in verse 22 and read uh, verses 22 through 26, again, to frame the context for what Jesus is going to tell us in verses 27 through 30. So please again follow along with me, verses 22 through 26. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Like, we've had enough of the figure of speech. Just give us some plain talk and tell us who you are. And Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, works like healing the man born blind in John 9. But Jesus says, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus is introducing here a distinction. The world is divided into sheep and non-sheep those who are part of Christ's flock and those who are not, those who believe on Jesus Christ by faith and those who don't. We see this at so many points in John's gospel, but Jesus is present. Jesus is saying, come to me, believe on me, ask of me, take of me. I'm the bread of life. I offer myself, my flesh for the life of the world. I am living water. And um, people respond in different ways to those gospel offers that Jesus makes. There are divergent reactions to Jesus. And those who do not believe, those who see Jesus, hear Jesus, see the works that He was performing and do not believe, they're understood to not be part of His flock. The reason they don't believe, Jesus says, is because they're not of His sheep. They're not of His elect. But those who do believe, those who do have faith, who see Jesus for who He is, as the Christ, as the Son of God, and who embrace Him by faith, they do so because they are part of Jesus' flock. They are Jesus' sheep. Verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. They hear the voice of the shepherd in the gospel call because they're chosen by Christ. They're part of His flock, and therefore they see Him. They see in the gospel message the glory of the Lord Jesus. You might remember back in John 1, uh, verse 14, uh, there the apostle John says, and we have seen Him, we have seen His glory as of the Son sent from the Father. There's a peculiar glory in the gospel message when Jesus is presented, and some see that glory and some don't. Why is that? Why is it that you have two people who could grow up in the same exact social and cultural context And they hear the same exact sermon, the same exact presentation of Christ, and some believe and some don't. Jesus is saying it's because the world is divided into two types of people, those who are not my sheep and those who are. And my sheep, they hear my voice. They respond to the gospel call, and they follow me. Jesus says here, well, it's quite easy actually to explain why you don't believe me. You're not of my sheep. Here I am, the good shepherd. I'm calling out, come to me, believe on me, ask of me, and you're not hearing my voice. You don't sense any glory in the words. You don't see any glory in the works that I am doing. That's because you're not my sheep, and you don't know my voice. That's his explanation for unbelief. Now, some people hear that, and they say, that really doesn't sound very fair. Jesus distinguishing between sheep and non-sheep, those poor non-sheep. If that's your take, I want to help you just a little bit shift your perspective, okay? Uh, Here's the status quo in this world before Jesus does anything. Uh, We're not neutral. We're not blank slates. In fact, we're all 
non-sheep. And we all hate the shepherd by nature. Uh, John talks about this using another image back in John chapter 3. We've referenced this many times in this series. The Lord Jesus comes into the world as light. And what do we read there? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In fact, they hate the light and aren't willing to come into the light lest their deeds are exposed. That's who we all are by nature. We're not neutral. Uh, The status quo is that we are born haters of God. And so the question is not why are some sheep and some not. Rather, the better question is why are there any sheep at all? Why does Jesus come as a good shepherd and not as a bloodthirsty hunter? Why is he sent into the world to save certain ones and not just destroy us all? Would he be unjust in coming on a mission of condemnation? Certainly not. But he's sent on a mission of rescue, on a mission of deliverance for his sheep. And he will call out certain ones purely by his glorious grace and by his merciful heart and by his compassion for lost people. And so our posture should not be, well, Who's elect? Who's non-elect? The the posture should be, why is anyone saved? Why does Jesus take the posture of a shepherd toward anybody? Why are there any sheep at all? The humble posture should be like that line we sing uh, sometimes, that, that hymn, how sweet and awful is the place. Is that line, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why why am I the recipient of your grace? Why are any of us recipients of the grace of God? The posture is amazement and wonder and thankfulness at the free grace of God. And if you're sitting here now and you're thinking, well, how do I know if I'm a sheep or not? Okay, that's the wrong question. The question you need to ask yourself this morning is do I hear the shepherd's voice? Do I hear him calling me? Do I see anything beautiful and wonderful and glorious in the gospel message? Do I see myself as a sinner in need of the grace of God? And if you hear the shepherd's voice this morning, there's nothing left than for you to come to him, to believe on him. You don't worry about the business of predestination. You let God sort that out. That's none of your beeswax. That's for him, okay? You focus on who Jesus is, and you focus on how He reveals Himself and what He offers to you in the gospel. And my plea for you this morning is that you respond in repentance and faith. Now, in the time that remains, I want to look at verses 27 through 30, uh, where Jesus touches on the doctrine of eternal security, and He does so in the warmest of terms. This doctrine is sometimes referred to as uh, the perseverance of the saints, or probably we should more accurately refer to it as the preservation of the saints, God's preserving us. It has to do with that question that any new believer might ask, and that is, can I lose my salvation? Can I begin in faith, but then lose that faith at a later date? And the Bible's answer to that question, and Jesus will touch on this in this text, but the Bible's answer to that question is no. None of those saved by the grace of God and born again by His Spirit can ever lose their salvation. And we're going to see this morning the reason that that is so is because Christ Himself is taking initiatives to make it so. He is the one who preserves the people of God and ensures that they will never fall away and that they will never lose their salvation. That's the issue we'll be looking at this morning in verses 27 through 30. So we'll open up these verses along three lines this morning. First, we'll see the truth of eternal security. Secondly, the foundation of eternal security. And thirdly and finally, the benefits of eternal security. The truth, the foundation, and the benefits. Please consider with me first the truth of eternal security. Let's look at verses 27 and 28 of chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In a number of places in John's gospel, the picture we're given of the world is a world that is perishing. 
Uh, In John 8, Jesus says, all those who don't believe in Him, they will die in their sins. They will perish in their sins. Everyone is perishing. Everyone is dying in their sin, but not Christ's sheep. Jesus says here, they are eternally safe and secure. He says to them, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. What does it mean that He gives them eternal life? Well, there's a very surface-level obvious meaning to that. That's that we're going to live forever. Uh, Those who receive eternal life, they will never die. They will have endless days. They will live everlastingly. But I think the idea is a little bit more than that. The idea of being recipients of eternal life, having eternal life, is not merely that we would have sort of endless quantity of days, but that we enter into a certain quality of life. Eternal life is something new. It's not that, well, you had your beginning and then you just sort of keep going and keep going and keep going. You're going to live forever. It's that we've entered into a new experience with God, a new relationship with Him. We're, we're said in other places in John's gospel to, in some way, enter into the life that the Father shares with the Son. That's something of what eternal life is. In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, where He prays on behalf of His people, He gives a sort of definition of eternal life. He says this, John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Are we going to live forever? Well, yes, of course so, but it means so much more than that. To enter into eternal life is to enter into a new experience of knowledge with God a certain sort of relationship with Him, a a walk with Him. And Jesus says to His people, you are those who inherit eternal life. You're brought into this new standing, this new relationship with God. Yes, you will live forever, and you'll be given a new quality of life marked by knowledge of the living God and enter into the life of the Godhead itself. But more than that, Jesus says, I will give them eternal life, but then He says they will never perish The world is perishing. The Lord's people will never perish. The word that means to perish in some context could simply mean to die. It's kind of like our English translations of the account of Esther. She goes in to see the king and she says, if I perish, I perish. Like if I get the axe, I get the axe, okay? Uh, That's often what that word can mean, to perish. But it often actually connotes more than that. It's the idea of being utterly lost, utterly ruined, utterly forsaken. To perish is so much more than just your heartbeat stopping. It's sort of utter destruction, utter ruin. It's like being totally lost and forsaken by God. And Jesus says here, that will never happen to the sheep of His flock. That will never happen to the child of God. They will never perish. They will never be lost. They will never be forsaken and never abandoned. The world is perishing, but my sheep, my sheep will never perish. And then Jesus, in verse 28, uses a wonderful picture to cement this point. He says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's at least two things I think we're meant to see there. Uh, First of all, we, Christ's sheep, Christ's people, His disciples, are pictured as being in Jesus' hand, which is understood to be the place of security and safety. It's the activity of Christ that is emphasized, His will, His determination to hold on to us. It's the image of active protection and care on the part of Jesus for His people. They're in His hand, safety security. But there's a second idea here. The picture envisions various forces that would wish to snatch the sheep out of Christ's hands and do them harm. The text says that they are totally, completely unable to do so. The idea is Jesus is holding the sheep. He's holding His people. And there are forces, be they the world, the flesh, the devil, and they're trying to snatch the sheep out of Jesus' hand. And Jesus says, they aren't able to do that. My grip is strong. I will hold them fast. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's interesting, you might remember a parallel text that we've seen earlier in this passage, or excuse me, this book, in John 6, 37. 
Uh, Where there, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Again, they're in Jesus' hands, and there the idea is He's not going to let them go. He's not going to throw them away. He's going to keep them. That's His will for them. Here the idea envisions someone now coming in and trying to snatch them from Jesus. And Jesus says, no one can do that. Utterly unable to do so. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hands. You might imagine the image. Sometimes I'll do this with my son, who's a toddler. You have something he wants, a piece of candy, a penny, whatever. And as a grown man, I'm holding it in my hand. He knows it's there. And he'll try to open my fist up and try to get it. It's a little game, right? Now, what are the odds that my one-and-a-half-year-old son is going to get the candy or whatever out of my hand? Well, he can't do it. That's something of what we can imagine with Jesus here. He's holding us, and all the attempts of Satan and of the world and of our enemies and of our own sin and inward corruption that would try to take us out of the Father's hands, they're no more powerful than that little toddler with that grown man trying to snatch that object out of his hand. That's the security and the safety that we have in Jesus. John 10, verse 28, is, I think, like John's version of Romans chapter 8, very famous text. I'll just read a few verses from there where the Apostle Paul, speaking of a similar idea, just with different language, says this, Romans 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Total safety, total security to use Jesus' image. No one will snatch them out of His hand. Tribulation can't do it. Distress can't do it. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, none of those things, and not your own sin, and not Satan himself, nothing can snatch you, child of God, out of the hands of the Lord Jesus. But you see, it's Christ Himself who makes us secure. It's His initiatives, it's His grip, it's His will, it's His purpose that makes us safe and ensures our preservation and our perseverance. It's the determination of Christ to hold on to us and to never let us go. And the idea is that just as it is unthinkable that Jesus could be overpowered by anything in the universe, so it is unthinkable that we could ever lose our salvation because our salvation ultimately depends on His power and on His will and on his determination to hold us fast. I've heard one preacher say, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it were up to us and our fickle faith, well, we'd have very little hope. But Jesus wants us to know your preservation in the faith, the knowledge that you will make it to the end is based on Jesus' will, his inflexible determination to hold you fast. So can you lose your salvation? It depends. Is anything stronger than Jesus? And you have your answer. The truth of eternal security is that Christ's people are ultimately made safe by His determination to hold them fast and save them to the uttermost. Well, now consider with me secondly. That's the truth of eternal security. That's the presentation of the doctrine itself. Now secondly, notice with me the foundation of eternal security. And look with me now at verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, here's the foundation. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, what exactly is Jesus doing here? by talking about his father and then his relationship with the father. Why does he not stop at, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand? Why talk about the father now? Well, verse 29, he says, the father is greater than all. 
And we might be tempted to think Jesus is like appealing to a higher authority than himself. Certainly those who are listening to him, those unbelieving Jews, when Jesus says, you know, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one's able to snatch them out of my hand, they're probably rolling their eyes at that. Like what kind of guarantee is that? I understand Jesus to be saying something like, well, you certainly would believe, of course, if the Father had this plan, we all know the Father is greater than all, uh, that if you were in the Father's hand, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, and of course they would assent to that. But then Jesus says, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The idea is not like Jesus is saying, well, I have this wonderful offer, I can guarantee you safety and security and eternal life, you're never going to perish. Let me call my manager to get clearance on that offer. Let me appeal to my higher up. That's not the idea at all. No, because he says, verse 30, whatever the Father can do, I can do. I and the Father are one. The idea is more like this, and, and this is not a perfect analogy. But imagine that you came to my house. Let's say there was some natural disaster. A hurricane tears through Winston-Salem. The roof is ripped off of your house, and water floods your house. And you show up on my doorstep knock on the door, and my wife answers. And you say, oh, Mr. Prima, you wouldn't believe what happened. Our house is flooded, and all our possessions are gone, and we need somewhere to stay. We need shelter. We need refuge. We need a place to stay. Can we stay here? And my wife says, of course you can. Of course you can. Please come inside. And let's imagine that I'm out away from the house. I'm walking the dog or something. And then you say to my wife, after she makes that offer, you say, well, hold, hold, hold on. Should we run this by Alex first? Should we wait till Mr. DePrima comes back? Um, I would feel more comfortable maybe if I, if I heard it from him. Do you really have the ability to, to make that offer to us? Should we wait till he returns? And then you could imagine my wife saying, my husband and I are one. I know his will. I know his desires. His resources are my resources. We are one. And I'm quite comfortable speaking for him, thank you very much. And I say, you can stay here. I know the heart of my husband. His heart is my heart. We are one. Yes, you can stay here in our home. Well, that's not a perfect analogy because the oneness the father shares with the son is so much more profound than the oneness a husband shares with his wife. But at the same time, Jesus, in essence, is saying, my father's will is my will. His resources are my resources. I and the Father are one. That same power, that same authority to guarantee eternal life, I share with the Father. I don't need to call the higher up in on this one. I and the Father are one. And so what is the foundation of eternal security? It's that Jesus is God. It's that Jesus shares oneness with His Father. This is not some empty offer that He can actually deliver on. Of course, we would all agree the Father who is greater than all, He's able to keep us and to be sure that no one snatches them out of His hand. And yet Jesus says, I share that same power, that saving power, that keeping power, that is mine by right. I just want us to appreciate here this, this verse in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Very famous verse, quoted often. It was a significant verse in the crafting of the early creeds of the church. In the Nicene Creed, we say that the Son is of the same substance with the Father. He's very God of very God, right? What I want you to appreciate is that this statement, I and the Father are one, it's not introduced to be sort of the forerunner to a creed, primarily. It's not introduced to be um, a subject for debate among theologians. This profound theological statement is presented so that you can know that when you breathe your last breath, you are no less safe in Jesus than when He first saved you. This, this deep theological statement that the Son is one with the Father is given to you so that you can be assured that you are safe and secure in Jesus' hands. Listen, theology matters. And shame on us if we don't study it in such a way that we learn the great fruit and benefit for our lives. This is meant for our security for our encouragement, understanding the very nature of the Son allows us to sleep soundly at night knowing that we're safe in His hand. This is the foundation of eternal security, that Jesus is one with His Father. and He commands all the same resources as the Father. 
He has the same saving power and the same keeping power. And if you are safe in His hands, you're safe in the hands of God. But now consider with me thirdly and finally, thirdly and finally, the benefits of eternal security. The truth of eternal security, the foundation of eternal security, thirdly and finally, consider with me, the benefits of the doctrine of eternal security. These benefits are not enumerated for us in the passage itself. I'm actually drawing from other places in the Scriptures. There's many benefits to knowing that we're eternally secure and safe in Jesus. I'm just going to list three, okay? Three benefits from the doctrine of eternal security. The first is this. The doctrine of eternal security gives us spiritual stability. The doctrine of eternal security of Christian assurance gives us spiritual stability. The doctrine of Christian assurance, perseverance of the saints, what I'm calling eternal security, that doctrine was recovered in a major way in the context of what's known as the Protestant Reformation. And um, I think it's one of the most precious things to come out of the 16th century, this recovery of the idea that you can know, that if you have faith in Christ, you can know that you are forever safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus, that you will not lose your salvation, that because salvation is all an act of God and a result of His will to save, you cannot ultimately be lost. And you can imagine people in the context of medieval Catholicism, which at that time taught very clearly that a believer, though he or she might have faith, must maintain that standing in grace by things like good works, various rituals, things like penance. In some cases, you've heard of the use of indulgences. You could purchase uh, time out of purgatory and purchase a way into favor with God, a highly corrupt, ritualistic sort of system. And you could imagine people in that setting who grow up in that environment to know, I, I, I'm, never, I'm never sure. It would be wrong for me to be sure that I'm actually going to be saved on my dying day. I have, to, I have to work. I have to strive. I have to be maintained in the good graces of God. And there's things I must continue to do. And if I fail to do those things, well, I'm going to be on the outside looking in. And though I may have been in God's good graces when I was 13, I have no guarantee that when I'm 63, I'll be standing in that same grace. And I love to imagine someone in that way of thinking, hearing a sermon preached on a text like this from a Reformation preacher, and appreciating and understanding for the first time on the basis of the Word of God alone, that God wants people to know, His sheep to know that they are eternally safe and secure in His hand. You can imagine the freedom that creates. I like to think of people all across Europe who are able to pillow their head at night for the first time, delivered from the, the fervid internal anxiety and anguish over whether or not I'm saved, whether or not I'm going to be right with God tomorrow. Now they're able to pillow their heads knowing, I'm safe in what Jesus has done. I'm safe because of what Jesus is determined to do on my behalf. He has said He's holding on to me. He will never cast me out, and no one is able to snatch me out of His hand. What stability that would bring to a soul to know that I'm not just endlessly on trial. Oh, am I going to be a Christian tomorrow or not? Am I going to be kept tomorrow or not? Am I going to lose my salvation next year? I don't know. We'll have to see. Is He going to make it? Is He not going to? And then to know that on the sure word of Scripture, you're eternally safe in what Jesus Christ Himself has done. If my salvation is a matter of Jesus' inflexible commitment to keep me, then I could walk through the storms of this life with assurance. See the spiritual stability this affords us. You realize it might have been different. Jesus might have said, well, look, here's, here's the deal. You need to try, try, try. It's about penance. It's about your good outweighing your bad. But it's not that way. That's not what Jesus wants. He wants you to know that you're His. More than that, He wants you to know that you're eternally safe and you're eternally secure. You might think, and I, I hope that this was not the experience of anyone in this room, but you might think of a child 
in a home who perpetually lives in doubt of his or her parents' affection, never knowing if mom and dad truly love them, never knowing if mom and dad are truly pleased. On some days, they're happy with me and they smile on me and I experience something of their love, but I don't know that I'll have that tomorrow. And you may know children in that environment, how they languish, how they become fragile and vulnerable and weak and unstable. Well, that's not how the Christian is meant to live. That's not how our Father is with us. He wants us to be assured of His affection, assured of His love. He wants us to know beyond any shadow of a doubt, he is, we are in His hands, and He is unwilling that we would ever be let go. He's unwilling that we would ever be snatched away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what He wants us to know. And notice in this passage in John 10, Jesus isn't afraid of some legalist coming along and say, no, 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 don't tell them that. If you tell them they're always going to be loved, they're always going to be kept, they're going to live like lousy Christians. Uh, they'll never really measure up to anything. Don't let them know for sure that they're saved or else they won't continue to work and strive and do. Jesus isn't worried about that at all. The Bible teaches that Assurance of our salvation and our safety and security in Jesus is the way to thrive in the Christian life. It creates an atmosphere of stability, an atmosphere of spiritual safety with Christ, whereby we trust Him and follow Him and walk with Him. Just as a sheep feels safe when the shepherd is around, we too are meant to feel safe in the hands of Jesus. The Apostle John, sometime after, we think, writing this gospel, he wrote some letters we believe from Ephesus, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is what they're called in our Bibles. In 1st John 5, verse 13, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance of salvation, assurance of eternal security and safety, that's not to be like some sort of rare jewel that only some Christians possess. It's like a gold ring that every Christian is to wear on their finger as their new birthright. God wants you to know, Christian, that you are eternally safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus. That's the first benefit. The doctrine of eternal security gives us spiritual security. Secondly, the doctrine of eternal security makes us God-centered as opposed to man-centered. I wasn't sure how to frame this point. Even now as I read that heading, I don't really uh, like it very much. I mean to say a lot more than that, actually. This point makes sense if you imagine a world in which we actually were not made eternally secure in Christ. Imagine a world in which we were not guaranteed eternal life as those who are born again. Imagine that we could lose our salvation. Well, listen, if the maintenance of our salvation depended on our doing we would always be centered on self, wouldn't we? I'd always be examining myself. I'd always be inward looking. There'd be this sort of morbid introspection, always thinking about myself, a sort of unhealthy self-scrutiny. But if our security and safety is rooted in what Christ has done and is doing on our behalf, then we're freed to focus on God. We become assured and happy, and thankful, and cheerful. We can leave behind the sort of frantic, uh, stressed out kind of worry that that other universe would create. But if we're safe in Christ, and if we're saved by His grace, sustained by His grace, kept by His grace, if it's all a result of the inflexible will of God, well, I'm, I'm free to think about God now. I'm I'm grace-oriented. I'm God-centered. I'm not looking at myself all the time and evaluating my motives and my sins and all of that. I'm looking to God for His grace. And I'm thanking Him. I'm celebrating Him. I'm adoring Him. I'm focused on Him and what He has done and what He is doing for me. It creates an overall God-centeredness. The focus is on the glorious grace of God in calling us and saving us and keeping us. God gets glory and God gets attention and God is thanked and God is adored for what He is doing. The focus is all on Him. And because it's on Him, 
Our orientation is not dour anxiety over maintaining our standing in grace, but it's thankfulness and it's cheerfulness and it's happiness in what Christ has done to make us safe in God. I'm encouraged to think way more about God and about the Lord Jesus than I am about myself, and that is a great blessing, great benefit to eternal security. Now, thirdly and finally, third benefit to the doctrine of eternal security. The doctrine of eternal security makes us free to take risks for Christ. The doctrine of eternal security makes us free to take risks for Christ. Now, work with me here on this point. I think to appreciate this point, you have to sort of penetrate into the psychology that Christian assurance creates, the overall frame of thought and life that the doctrine creates. In general, and it's important that you hear me, in general, it's not universally true, in general, unassured or underassured people don't go to the mission field. They don't sacrifice their lives. They don't take risks. They don't attempt great things for Christ because ultimately they're unstable and they're unsure. They're not free with their lives because at the end of the day, this life may be all that I have. Can I really be assured of everlasting life? Can I really be sure that God will accept me at the end of the day? Can I know that I'm eternally secure in Jesus? Do I know that I'll inherit the earth with Christ? I'm not so sure. And you see, there's a lack of freedom in that. And I fear that Christian people, due to a lack of assurance, never really sort of go all in with Christ. They become unwilling to take risks for Jesus, to attempt great things for Jesus, because at the end of the day, they're unsure even about their own spiritual state. They've not really walked yet into the freedom of what the promise of eternal security is meant to engender and meant to create. They don't risk their lives if they don't believe and know beyond shadow of a doubt that their life is secure in Christ. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3.3, that their life is hid with Christ in God. Godly risk-taking usually happens from a posture of assurance, knowing that I am safe in Jesus' hands, knowing that I'm safe in Christ, makes me willing to use my life in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise. Remember Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the obvious answer? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But it seems that there's an assumption in that verse, in that passage. Our assurance of eternal security and of the unending love of Christ actually enables us to face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. This is the idea. Jesus close-handedness with His sheep allows us to be open-handed with our lives. Because we know we're eternally safe and secure in Him, we can be open-handed with our lives. Because He's never letting go of me, I can let go of this life. I can say with Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, and His kingdom is forever. And you know what? I'm a member of that kingdom. I am the beneficiary of eternal life. My life is hid with Christ in God, and therefore I could be open-handed with this life. I can give up goods and kindred. I could take risks for the Lord Jesus. I could go to the mission field. I could live all sorts of ways that I was not free to live before I was given this guarantee that I will never be lost from the Lord's hands. I will never be snatched out of His hands. If you're safe with Christ, then you are free to live like the Apostle Paul who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's that assurance that to die is to enter into gain that frees us now to live courageously for Jesus. Because I know my lot is secure. 
I've been promised eternal life. I will never perish. No one will snatch me out of the Lord Jesus' hand. That creates freedom to take risks for Christ. I fear there are a lot of Christians who would never say they lack assurance of eternal life, but man, they sure act like it. It's one of the greatest tragedies to me when you see Christians clinging to their health as though it's like the only thing they have. You'll hear people in the world say that, well, you only have your health, right? The goal in life is to be healthy and happy. And, and you see how lost people, because as the Scriptures say, their lot is in this life. Their good things are in this life. They cling to life. And the most important thing in the world is to have the best possible health care and the best possible doctor. And the worst thing that could ever happen is to get a cancer diagnosis or something like that. Can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you enter the consultation room to talk to your doctor and hear that diagnosis, whatever it is, shouldn't that consultation be markedly different for the Christian than for the non-Christian? We're going to receive eternal life. We're safe in the hands of Jesus. I don't need to worry about my health. Put all the necessary qualifications on that. But we have other things that we've been promised. Our good is not only in this life. We don't cling to health as the most important thing in the world because we have eternal health in Jesus. You see this also, this mindset in couples who feel so, so slow to take any risk for Jesus, to actually give up of their time to serve in the church or to live their lives in some sort of open, radical sort of way. I encourage you, husbands and wives, talk about this. Say, I want to live my life like John 10 verse 28 is true, that we actually will inherit eternal life. We will never perish. No one will ever snatch us out of the Father's head. hands. No hedging. We, we are freed now to live in a way that we were not free to live before. Life will not boil down for us to, to health and vacations at the beach and, and a really inflated retirement and just leaving the biggest possible inheritance we could leave for our kids. We want to live for different things. And we're freed to do so by what the Lord Jesus himself has promised us. I'll tell you, one of the ways I've seen this worked out, and it's an utter tragedy to me, I have friends who this day are not on the mission field because Christian parents and grandparents have pressured them not to go. Uh, you know, son, daughter, you know I can't bear to be without my grandbabies. I don't think you should go. And son, we really could use you here, and what are we going to do about Saturday brunch? What are we going to do about the family vacation every year when we go out to the beach house? I think that's an utter tragedy. We're safe in the Lord Jesus. We are the beneficiaries of eternal life. We don't cling to vacations at the beach. We don't cling to our health, to our money, and even to our own children. If they're in Christ, we hold them with open hands. We say, Lord, take them. Do whatever you want. We're going to have eternity at the beach. Our family will be together there around the throne. I'm not worried about lost time with my kids and my grandkids. It's better for them to go and to share Christ with a lost and dying generation. But what I want you to see is that what makes us so open-handed in that way is the assurance that we are eternally safe and secure in Jesus, that we are those who inherit eternal life, who will never perish and who can never be snatched out of Jesus' hands. You can go, son. You're safe in Jesus. And we'll have our time together. The doctrine of eternal security frees us to take risks for Jesus. I want to close with this question. You say it's a wonderful thing to contemplate what Jesus has promised in his word. These words here that he gives eternal life, no one's able to snatch his sheep out of his hand. That's wonderful. And I look at that and I say, praise God. But what do I do if I lack assurance of that truth? 
Like I know when I'm looking at the Bible and I'm at church and I'm praying and singing and we're all together, like I know I am safe and secure in Jesus. But then I go home and then the week happens and things happen and I just sort of lose my handle on that. Lots of Christians struggle with assurance. Am I truly a believer? Am I truly saved? Am I truly safe in Jesus? I want to encourage you with two quotes from Charles Spurgeon, great British preacher. He says this, assurance is to be found where faith was found. Assurance is to be found where faith was found. Essentially what he's saying is that when you doubt your salvation or you're not sure, you don't have a sense of your eternal security in Christ, well, don't go back to the record book. Pull up all the old files to see, well, do I act like a Christian or do I not? No, you're to go to Jesus. You're to look to Him and you're to believe on Him. Assurance is to be found where faith was found. He says, your business is to go to Christ as you are and trust Him and you shall have it. Now, here's this second quote that I think is so important. Spurgeon said, when I cannot go to God as a well-assured saint, I can always go to Him as a needy sinner. You say, I don't feel eternally safe and secure. I don't have a sense that I'm in Jesus' grip. I don't feel like a well-assured saint this morning. You can always go to Him as a needy sinner. There's never a time that you can't. And I say that here to you who are outside of Christ, who've never believed on Him. You can go to Him this morning. You can always come to Him as a needy sinner. And His short word is that He will receive you. He will save you. He will make you a sheep of His flock. And He will be eternally good to you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made us eternally safe and secure in your Son, the Lord Jesus. This is all the more wonderful to us when we consider that it might not have been so, that we were rebels against you, that we were just like those who love darkness rather than light, but you have taken every initiative by your grace to draw us into your flock. And all we could do is stand in amazement and wonder and adoration as we observe our good shepherd who goes before us to see how he loves us and how he leads us and how he treats his own. Give us a sense, we pray, of our safety and security in him. And we pray that this safety and security would cause us to lead stable Christian lives, that it would give to us an overall God-centeredness and a orientation toward your grace and what you do for us, and that we would be equipped by this assurance to live open-handed lives, to take risks, to do great things for the Lord Jesus because ultimately he is holding us fast, and he will never let us go. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.